Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. I've been thinking a lot about clothes recently. Like most people in the world right now, my world is much more circumscribed than it used to be. I go from my house into the garden to check on my snap peas and tomatoes. I go to the front porch to have a beer and read. I take my dogs on a walk. I go to the grocery store once a month. I used to wake up every morning and bike to the office where I saw and was seen by a dozen people or more. What a luxury. How do I dress for this new world? I feel myself reaching for different clothes than I used to, some clothes I've never worn before, some clothes I never thought I'd wear again. Every Friday at my house is Fancy Friday now, and we dress up in cocktail gowns and suits and make an absurdly complicated meal because what else are we gonna do? What I wear feels so essential to me in this moment in a way that I never really thought of before. So I wanted to invite someone on the show who's been thinking about clothing for much longer and more deeply than me. Our guest today is Shahid Abari. She's a professor of fashion cultures and histories at the London College of Fashion and a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy at the London School of Economics. Her new book, Dressed, is pretty much what you would get if you crossed a philosopher with a fashion writer. She writes about the feeling you get when your feet are mercifully dry in a pair of yellow rain boots or what the subtle pull of a tie can do to your spine and your personality. She's articulated a philosophy of clothes, which interested me before this pandemic, but interests me even more now. How do we dress for disaster? Who do we dress ourselves for? Shahada Bari joins us from her home in London. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for having me, Stephanie. So I wanted to start this conversation in that magical time before the pandemic and ask you how you first got to thinking about a philosophy of clothes. I was always interested in what other people wore, not because I was interested in fashion particularly or how stylish people were, but just the fact that people make decisions about what they wear and that we walk through the world, you know, a a woolen sleeve brushing up against a denim jacket all the time seemed really fascinating to me. Um, I really care about dress. I'm interested in the ways that we read each other's dress, the things that we say in what we wear or we think we say, and the things sometimes that we say without knowing it. And that seemed to me such an interesting and thoughtful, considerate way of engaging with the world and other people. 
And at the same time, I was really conscious that for many people, dress feels like a really frivolous subject um, of interest. It feels like something flippant and to be interested in dress is to be somehow vain or narcissistic. And I wanted to try and reconcile that because it seems to me there's so much we learn about each other through what we wear. And there's a whole history of being human that happens in the things that we wear. Remember the feeling of putting on your winter coat on the first cold day of September. Everybody knows what that feeling is, right? And I'm also really conscious at the moment that fashion and mass-produced clothes are part of a huge climate crisis that we're undergoing. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is how we persuade people to care about the people who make our clothes. And one of the things I try to do in my book is to encourage people to care about their clothes in order that they might care about the people who make them too. Right now, all those questions seem even more pressing because so many of the people who make those clothes are out of work alongside millions of other people around the world. And a lot of people are stuck at home, either working or without work. And the idea of getting dressed for work seems to have changed a lot in the past couple weeks. How has your thinking about clothing changed in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, that's such a good question because it might feel like when you're undergoing something as harrowing and anxiety-inducing as the coronavirus epidemic, pandemic, it might feel like clothes and fashion certainly are the last things on your mind. But it's just become so apparent to me, to everybody I talk to, that... um, People are thinking about how to make themselves comfortable. People are wearing not just comfy clothes at home, but wearing the things that give them comfort. And I talk about self-care in the book through the um, feminist activist Audre Lorde, who talks about self-care as an act of preservation and how you care for your body in a culture that is disinclined to prize your particular, in her case, a black lesbian female body. And self-care seems to me like one of the things that clothes do for us. They give us comfort. But but also, lots of people I know, my friends, are, are missing their their routines. They miss um, putting on their work shoes or doing their lipsticks. In fact, I have a colleague um, who's an academic. She said she was teaching an online seminar and she spritzed herself with perfume before the seminar, which I thought was hilarious, but totally makes sense. There are rituals that our clothes and our toiletries and our accessories are a part of that make us ourselves. And now that we're, lots of us are working from home, we're having to think about the difference between our home selves and our working selves and how we accommodate that in these new conditions. I mean, I can feel it. If I I thought I was going to leave the house yesterday, so I showered and I put on nice clothes and I put on perfume and makeup. And uh, then it turned out that I wasn't going to go out after all. And I don't know, I felt more ready to take on mm. the things that I was going to do that day. Yeah, oddly, I think it might happen a lot more to men. Lots of men I know would say that they don't think about their clothes, but when they go to work, they'll put on a a collar. They'll have a collar or a shirt or they'll wear a tie. And the things that collars and ties do, well, they, they stiffen your neck and they straighten your spine. So you sit more erectly. And there's something about the way that our clothes work on our body 
that um, are signaling our different modes of being in the world. And so if you're working from home and you're not wearing your tie and collar, well, it might be that much harder to slip into work mode. And in fact, one of my, my male colleagues was saying exactly that. We were doing a um, Microsoft Teams meeting and for the first time ever, I saw him in a T-shirt. Um, and it was really bewildering in one way to see him not in his usual shirt and tie. But the other thing that I realised is there's something really humanising about seeing our colleagues in their slightly frayed t-shirts and their favourite sports jerseys, that we're all, in this particular moment, we're all juggling so much and dealing with such a complicated set of circumstances. There's something really democratising and humanising about seeing our colleagues at home in their frayed t-shirts. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking the other day, my friend is dating this lawyer whose case is going to go on, but it's going to be a Zoom trial now. These might be the first cases that are tried without pants. Like, I bet (laughs) there's an attorney who's going to try that. Yeah, I mean, it does remind you how much performance is entailed in our clothes. Um, I think most of us don't think on that because I think very often, understandably, we put on our clothes unthinkingly because we do it every day and we do it all the time. Um, but maybe we're having to think about the performance involved in our clothes and they, the way that they work upon our, our bodies. Um, the book is for men and women, but I do talk about how I think women have very particular relationships with clothes because most of us, I think, live in a culture where we are scrutinised for our bodies and for our appearance, for whether we're thin enough or beautiful enough or feminine enough or maternal enough. And there's a kind of pressure that lots of women face, which we may feel liberated from as a result of being on a Zoom meeting. Yeah, and I think too, it brings to the fore these questions about inner and outer congruence that you talk about. You know, there's always that one dress you reach for that makes you feel like yourself. And, you know, we all have this mountainous amount of time in front of us that is free of commutes um, for a lot of people. And then for others who are less fortunate, free of jobs. And I think it really raises the question of like, who are you? Who are you projecting to the world? How is what you're putting on your body doing that? Is it you? Yeah, I, I totally understand that that sentiment. I totally know that feeling where you feel like you're you're not properly equipped. You've you've missed the mark somehow, and how abject that feeling can be. And and the opposite of that is the dream. I mean, I say it's a fantasy, the fantasy of the right dress. Um, the closest I've got to it is I was a bridesmaid for a friend, and um. At the end of the night, she and I were up in her room because she was getting changed into her party dress and I was unbuttoning her bridal gown for and it was this beautiful ivory um, satin dress in a kind of 50s style with a boat neck with hundreds of buttons down the back. And it felt like this really intimate moment between the two of us, this private moment that we had. And she said to me, oh, Shahida, this is the, the one moment in my life where I feel like the person I am on the inside is somehow visible on the outside. And, and I could see it in her too, the, this realisation of the person she thought she was made visible to everybody else. Um, so I think it is possible to have the right dress. So I think it's a rare thing. Yeah, it's really beautiful. One thing we haven't talked about yet is shoes. It seems like you can be without almost anything else, but if you're missing your shoes, that really does say a lot. And I think my favourite part of... Um, your discussion of shoes is where you talk about waiting for Godot, because then the question is like, well, if you have shoes, if you've managed to hold on to shoes, but you have nowhere to go, like maybe right now in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic, what does it matter? 
Yeah, um, the waiting for Godot example is amazing. Um, Estragon pulls off his boot and there's a, this big climax as to what he's going to find in the boot and there's nothing in there. It's a great anticlimax in the way of um, Beckett's work and there's a kind of ridiculousness to it. But at the same time, in a moment of crisis, if a tornado comes or if there's an earthquake or if there's that knock, that fateful knock on the door, um, in our moments of greatest terror where we have to flee, we have to flee for our lives, what you need is shoes on your feet. That's what Primo Levi says, in fact, in his memoir of, of Auschwitz. He says, of course you need food, but the first thing you need is shoes because you have to run, you have to run for your life. And it's those moments where you realise how important our shoes are. I write about how, how casual we are about our shoes, you know. If you're anything like me, your shoes are, are piled up in your porch. There might be holes in your shoes or they might be unpolished. Um, we don't treat our shoes well, but at the same time, they are a kind of essential. In order to survive, we need shoes. And I wanted us to think about that more, not least because the people who make our shoes are enormously skilled. It is a feat of engineering to make a shoe. Even a mass-produced shoe requires such extraordinary craftsmanship. And I wanted to, to remember how important our shoes, to remember too how skilled the people who make our shoes are. Yeah, I have such respect for shoemakers. I can sew my own clothes, but I, I can't imagine making a shoe that fits like the ones that I got from my mother, for example. Um, I'm thinking of this lovely green pair that's just so simple, just two pieces of the softest green leather twisted together, and how she loved them enough to resole them twice. And now I've worn them so much that I have to resole them too. And I don't know, there's something about that, about continuing that process that makes me really feel the care that went into making them and then caring for them. And now that's passed on to me. I love that story, and I love the sound of those shoes too. I when <laughs> when I was um, researching the book, I I just kept coming across these stories, these kinds of stories, particularly about our parents. My friend Nadia, her her family were originally Viennese, and um, they fled from the Nazis. And her family were furriers. In fact, they made furs. And she is this wonderful person, quite radical and absolutely opposed to wearing furs. But she inherited furs from her immigrant grandparents. And in particular, one fur that um, Nadia is very small, but she inherited one fur coat from her grandmother that fits her like a dream, like the cuff um, of the sleeve cuts off exactly where it should at the joint of her wrist. I mean, it, it, it's bespoke. And at the same time, she can't bear to wear it because she's opposed to real fur. And so she has this very curious relationship with this garment that is her inheritance and also something she sort of wants to disown. And at the same time, it fits her because it belongs to her. It's a kind of genetic inheritance in a way. It's the shape and form of her, her ancestors, and it, it's sitting in her cupboard. I think our relationship with the clothes that our parents and our grandparents leave us is so freighted, which is why it's so hard when people we love die, we have to sort through their clothes and work out what we do with them because those clothes almost seem to bear a trace of their bodies. Often they, they feel like they smell of them. They're not just inanimate objects. They have a life, even though the person who wore them is no longer there. Yeah, clothes are so intimate, and that's almost what 
offends me about fast fashion is that it becomes this disposable thing and not something that you care for and you wash carefully and you've, you know, invested both time and money into and that the person on the other end making the clothes has also invested time and money into and, you know, gotten paid that money. I would agree with you, absolutely agree with you in lots of ways. Um, My position on fast fashion is that we live in a culture where we, we often rebuke young women, it seems to me particularly, for buying disposable fashion, for not mending more and taking care of their goods. But really, we need to point our fingers at industry because the problem is not overconsumption. It's overconsumption that's come about as a result of overproduction. And we need to demand industry and governments institute stricter controls over the ways that clothes are made and sold and the rights and conditions of the people who are making those clothes. I'm really interested in finding ways of thinking about that that doesn't end up accusing young women for buying too much because I often think young women are buying clothes to fill an emptiness in life And I don't want to blame them for that emptiness. I remember exactly what it was like to be in my 20s and to dreaming of being a certain kind of person and trying to be that person through every new outfit that I bought. And I don't blame young women for that. But I I think we have to think about the way that the fashion industry works and the conditions in which these clothes are made. And we have to, we absolutely have to find ways of challenging it. Yeah, I mean, and the the way that the fashion industry is working right now in this crisis is just, I think, shows how soulless the industry really is. Not the people buying it, yes. but, you know, the billionaires forcing their employees to work without masks or gloves up until shelter in place orders and then refusing to buy orders that they sent to factories elsewhere in the world. It's just baffling yeah I mean the the thing I would say about the fashion industry in this pandemic is that um, you're exactly right that people in Bangladesh and Indonesia and other places where fashion has been outsourced are working in awful conditions I mean impossible to isolate and to keep safe distance it's just horrendous to think about how something like the coronavirus will spread in those conditions Um, and then if and when these places go into lockdown those workers are being dispersed without pay or any sort of compensation and so their already meager wages will be diminished it's I mean I it's just an absolutely horrendous state of affairs but it also reminds us I think that fashion is a global industry it's a global industry and it is a series of dominoes I remember when Armani shut down his show at Milan Fashion Week in February and people were making jokes about supermodels fighting over Louis Vuitton face masks as though it were a joke and then all the fashion weeks fell and now we know the Met Gala isn't going to happen in September Fashion is a global industry. It will happen at that level, but it will happen across the supply chain. And it's indicative of lots of other industries. But we're going to see the repercussions in a in a devastating way. And that affects all of us, because all of us will have something in our wardrobes. We'll be wearing something that has been made in China, in Indonesia, in Bangladesh. Yeah, and I, I mean, I do think the silver lining of clothing, at least, is that it is something that there is an emotional thread to in a way that there might not be for other, you know, mass-produced Tupperware, say, because there is a story there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we can ultimately, I think, make a better world out of that. I absolutely agree. I think that there is something about 
the hands through which any garment has passed. I always think it's interesting that when we buy things in shops, we look for the garment that is untainted. It's not stained. There's no threads loose. Um, if you saw a, a lipstick stick mark or a smudge on a garment, you wouldn't buy it. As though the garment had not passed through so many hands before it comes to you. And I, I think that's worth remembering, the hands through which a garment has passed. You know, the, the person who's grown the cotton and dyed the cotton and cut the pattern and sewed it and packaged it and delivered it to the, you know, the, the, the young woman in the store who's hanging it on a rail. You know, it's passed through so many hands before it's come to you. And we're connected to those people, of course. And then and in the end, I, I mean, the book is also about pleasure. I, be, I, I begin the book by talking about climbing up the escalator on the London Underground one drab morning and seeing a girl on the opposite escalator coming down in a jade green silk skirt and the way that the colour of that skirt and the, the the tactility of it jabbed at my eye and I could feel it in my fingertips and I think there are ways in which we are exhibiting our susceptibility to each other that we're responding to each other as human beings and we're demonstrating our alertness to life in the things that we wear and that absolutely connects us. So to close, I just want to ask how you're approaching clothes every day now with your routine, whether there's, um, I don't know, some advice you can share about how to, I don't know, um, use clothing to build a better life in the middle of a quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that clothes might be the last thing that many people are thinking about, but I do think there's something about not just wearing something comfortable, but comforting yourself. So if that means wearing your favourite um, jersey or even if it means wearing your pyjamas, so be it. I don't think um, any of us should judge at the moment. But I also think there's so much work that our clothes do. They apportion our day. They tell us when we're being a father or a mother or a manager or it can help us have our routines. It can help us feel normal. And, and the final thing I would say, if any of you are in... Um, isolation with your partner um, spare a thought for them my husband's been wearing a tracksuit for the last do, do Americans have tracksuits he's been wearing oh, we a do. athleisure we have <laughs> <laughs> well he's been wearing a tracksuit for the last two weeks and it's driving me spare so I think there's a duty of care we have to each other that um, you know we can um, brighten each other's day um, by dressing up and go wild I mean wear a bow tie to dinner if you want why not I think the rules have gone out the window the blurb for Shahada Bari's book, Dressed, calls it the thinking person's book on fashion, and I couldn't think of a better way to put it. Whether you've thought deeply about what certain articles of clothing mean to you, whether you make your own clothes, or whether all of this is new territory for you, her book is a great place to start. I've got links to an excerpt in the show notes, alongside some links to several Instagram accounts about historical fashion that are keeping me sane these days. We'll be back next week with another remotely recorded episode beamed straight from my home to yours. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.